They say that one person's trash is another person's treasure, and nothing proves that point like a trip to the local used bookstore. On my podcast, Half Price Horror, I take a trip every episode to that store and come back with horror movies ranging from genre classics to obscure cult gems and everything in between. Then I do a deep dive discussion into their stories, their themes, and some of the things that make them unique. I hope you'll join me, because at Half Price Horror, we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Available wherever Anchor Podcasts can be found. <laughs> I, I just... I wanted to see you before... You have to leave now. And never come back here. Have you ever heard of insect politics? Neither have I. Insects don't have politics. They're very brutal. No compassion, no compromise. We can't trust the insect. I'd like to become the first insect politician. You see, I'd like to, uh, but oh, I'm afraid. Uh, I don't know what you're trying to say. I'm saying. I'm an insect who dreamt he was a man and loved it. But now the dream is over and the insect is awake. No, sir. I'm saying I'll hurt you this day. I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding and appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. Now, if you're new to the show, well, first, thank you for joining us. This isn't your standard film review. Rather, it's a deep-dive synopsis into a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection, with a little background thrown in on the actors, information on the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job, perhaps you'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Now, fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of the plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you want to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review. 
Got a little bit of housekeeping up here at the top again. So, I mean, clearly, I was going to be releasing another episode of our Superior Remakes for April. You know, kicking off Season 5, and of course, giving you a quality product that both entertains and enlightens you. And here we are, officially in May. Still kicking off Season 5, but of course, starting a, well, I guess it would be a month late and more than a dollar short. And for that, you have my apologies. I have to tell you, for the time being, I'm not going to be stopping this podcast, but I'm gonna have to just admit it. I have to reel in when I release episodes, so that way I'll still be able to keep delivering a quality product, but... You know, at least now, for the time being, it's going to be releasing probably an episode a month instead of one each week, which just allows us time to put this stuff together and give you something we're actually proud of. So, that said too, I know I said I had a slate of themes. Don't worry, we're still going to do a tribute to Bruce Campbell. He's awesome. Um, We're just going to push that back a bit. So, call it an audible, and we're going to basically turn this into our Superior Remake Summer. And that theme is just going to take us all the way through August, and hopefully that's going to continue to be something you folks enjoy. I want to be able to keep doing this. I want it to still have a certain level of quality. I know quality is subjective, but I have to say with my day job having me write on the regular, uh, this lets me keep doing what I like doing without completely burning out. So all that to say, again, thank you. We appreciate you listening so much. We hope you will find this is still something worth listening to. So with all that said, let's keep the Superior Remix theme rolling here. That's our salute to some cinematic remakes that we really feel outshined their source material. And this week sees us getting down with the 1986 sci-fi horror cult classic, The Fly. Join us! Remakes, when done properly, they could be a transformative experience. Something that really takes low art into a whole new league. The flip side is, they also can become just steaming piles you wish you never encountered that just make you long to go back and watch the original which was, you know, a solid offering over this, this thing that you paid good, hard-earned money to see. But when it comes to the case of this week's film, uh, firmly, I'm going to come down on the side of this was something that was worthwhile. We're covering The Fly. Now, like many folks, I saw the original Fly when it showed up on a Saturday afternoon matinee feature on good old Fox 32, WFLD Chicago, eh, probably circa 1992. Just sort of a wild scenario where my father was just channel surfing, we were playing with Legos on the floor, and he stopped to see it, and we all just kind of got into it, and we went along for the ride. Enjoying the sights as Jeff Goldblum went through his disturbing metamorphosis and attempted to create something cool in the process. Now, to be fair, and to give my dad some credit, it's not that my father was super permissive with watching horror movies or, you know, things that were inappropriate for kids. With his logic, he was, this is a Saturday movie matinee on TV, heavily edited, and for the record, it totally was. So it was just kind of a fun, silly creature feature. And when you basically have the violence edited out and, you know, most of the inappropriate language dubbed for a television broadcast, it was something he was totally fine with having us watch. 
now smash cut me entering high school and i'm attempting to track down and watch a host of older films which naturally led me to scoping out the original 1958 fly offering when it played as part of the halloween lineup that would always come about every year at least in the late 90s on amc and that kicked off a need to see all of these movies yet again Besides, you get the great Vincent Price showing up on the big screen. What's not to like? Will everyone in the theater hold on firmly to his seat, please? So naturally, I found myself needing to go out and rent again the 1986 version, but now I'm a high school kid, I have access to a car, I have a, you know, part-time job, I have a little bit of spending cash in my pocket, I can pay to see the actual uncut film, and then that became an opportunity to dig even deeper, because then I found myself looking to own a copy of it for my own growing VHS collection back in the day, thinking that the practical effects were indeed amazing and the performances were themselves stellar. But I guess that also paints me as coming from a particular time and place, doesn't it? Well, truly, that doesn't matter, because when it comes to horror offerings, the 1986 version of The Fly delivers in spades, and that's why we're here talking about it today. During the mid-1980s, right at the high watermark of horror film remakes that were being cranked out en masse, and then, thanks to the marvelous one-two punch of the knee-jerk reaction that came to conservative Cold War culture, and... Once more, the deep and abiding love that film studios had for money, I mean, truthfully, what's not to like? 20th Century Fox found themselves eyeing up their back catalog of intellectual property to see what they could repurpose for a new generation of film audiences. 
Producer Stuart Kornfeld, who at the time was just coming off of producing the Dom DeLuise comedy Fatso, and found himself starring in a very small cameo role as the Pirate King in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, he was looking to get some of that sweet remake cash for himself, and also to pad out his project portfolio. Now, the man has since passed on, and this has been attributed to a lot of people, but sidebar, if you've seen the Ben Stiller movie Tropic Thunder, you know the profane producer Les Grossman, who was played at the time by Tom Cruise? I know a lot of people have said, oh, this is who Tom Cruise was doing, but since Ben Stiller worked with him, he has gone on to admit he based that character on Kornfeld. Nice guy, huh? Well, regardless, Kornfeld, along with screenwriter Charles Edward Pogue, started sifting through those Fox back catalog of intellectual property, and they stumbled across the knowledge that Fox, at least for the time, still owned the rights to the original George Langland's 1957 short story, The Fly. Kornfeld went out and he watched the original 1958 film with the great Vincent Price, David Hedinson, and Patricia Owens, and he thought, this, this is a perfect movie that we could remake, especially if we play up the horrors of teleportation gone wrong. But now, of course, with modern effects, they could do it, and they could show much more than the original film had, at least when it comes to offering a monster fly, especially the fly-head-and-hand combination. Kornfeld had Pogue, pen a script, and he began shopping the idea around Hollywood, looking for fellow creatives to get on board. Specifically, he wanted director David Cronenberg to come and helm the project, but much to his disappointment, Cronenberg, who told him to his face, hey, I really like this concept, he was already attached to film an adaptation of Total Recall for Dino De Laurentiis. Lukewarm on Pogue's script, and knowing that Kornfeld didn't really have a solid director lined up, 20th Century Fox decided to hedge its bet and decided to convey to Kornfeld that, look, we're going to let you go on and produce this film, and sure, we'll act as a distributor, but we're not interested in giving you funding, so you're going to have to go and find your own financial backer elsewhere. So, like all logical businessmen, Kornfeld turned to the one individual who he felt he could really get this project funded and off the ground with. Mel Brooks. Now, allow me to put this into some context. Yes, legendary filmmaker, comedian, writer extraordinaire Mel Brooks may not, at least on paper, seem to be the first go-to for us in this instance, especially when we look at it nowadays, but you have to think of where Brooks was during the early 1980s. Heck, if you look at Blazing Saddles alone, clearly you can see that Brooks had an eye for getting funding to make what would be, well, considered the impossible, possible. But he had taken his comedy empire in a direction that made him have to distance himself from what we would consider to be more straight cinematic offerings. Thus, his production company, the more generically titled Brooks Films that he had established in 1980, was sort of his backdoor way to allow him to have the latitude to put out both his comedy films as well as other projects that he felt were worthy of merit, or at least would be profitable. Brooks Films had already gotten some praise and prestige for producing some rather serious works, such as The Elephant Man in 1980, directed by David Lynch, or 
Graham Clifford's 1982 film Francis, or 1985's The Doctor and the Devils, which was yet another retelling of the old Burke and Hare story. But my point remains, if you're looking for more projects, you could go to Mel Brooks. And that's where Kornfeld came calling. He thought he had something that Brooks would want, and to be truthful, the latest offering from Brooks Films was not the greatest. It was a post-apocalyptic sci-fi sports film called Solar Babies. Now, I have to admit, it's a delightful hot mess of a movie. It's got the gorgeous Jamie Gertz in it, a young Jason Patrick, Peter DeLuise, Lucas Haas, Charles Durning, and it's sort of a personal cheesy favorite of mine, but it was already looking to be a bit sketchy. And here, spoiler alert, Solar Babies, when it was finally released, made for $25 million, it only ended up grossing $1.6 million at the box office. So, as you could see, not all of the things that Brooks Films would back would be considered gold. Brooks, though, still had street cred and finances to help get a project off the ground, and Brooks himself was savvy enough to realize that in spite of the fact that he didn't like the script that Pogue had penned, this was still a good idea for a movie to remake. So, demanding new writing, Brooks had started to pull together funding, and he put screenwriter Waylon Green on the project. Green, himself no slouch, the man had written The Wild Bunch with Sam Peckinpah, and then he had gone on to write Sorcerer for William Friedkin. We're going to be seeing that one later. He was a good egg, and a good person to have in your corner. Kornfeld himself, with Brooks's blessing, went on to hire British director Robert Bierman to helm the entire project. And that's just about when things went decidedly pear-shaped. Green did a complete rewrite that Bierman, Brooks, and Kornfeld did not at all care for. So the original writer, Pogue, was hired to come back to the project once again and polish up the story now about a man mutating into a giant insect. Figuring that they would fix it as they went along the way, the trio had made plans to move forward with pre-production and casting. But that's just when Bierman received a horrific phone call. You see, while Bierman was in Los Angeles putting this film together, his family had been vacationing in South Africa. And while there, his daughter was killed in a car accident. Production immediately halted and Bierman raced to fly halfway around the world to be with his family, much to Brooks and Kornfeld's understanding. After a month had passed, though, Bierman was still in the grips of a deep depression, and he had requested to be able to walk away from the project to focus on both his family and his own mental health. Brooks, while completely understanding the director's needs, but still wanting him for the project, decided that he would hold up production for another three months in an attempt to give the poor man some more time to heal. In the end, though, it wasn't meant to be. Bierman would reflect back on it later, that he just wasn't in the right headspace at the time, but he did make a point to say he both appreciated Brooks and Kornfeld's deep sympathy and support, even when they were forced to part ways. They still had a problem, though. As Kornfeld would so pointedly recount years later, we now had a flawed script, no director, and a tainted vibe for the entire project brought on by a tragedy. What a great place to start! Still, inside of every dark cloud, a silver lining can form. 
and now with the holdup of over four months stopping production, enough time had now passed for director David Cronenberg to sadly watch his efforts to get his adaptation of writer Philip K. Dick's short story, We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, translated up onto the big screen as Total Recall for Dino De Laurentiis. That completely fell apart. And now, the director was back in play to helm the new take on the fly. Cronenberg agreed to come on board with both Brooks and Kornfeld if he was allowed to rewrite the script himself and have the ability to ask for a salary of $750,000 with the option to hire his usual crew. Brooks went out of his way to secure funding and countered that if Cronenberg would come on board this project, he could do the rewrite and Brooks would personally pay him a cool million dollars to direct. And of course, he could hire his own crew. And just like that, Cronenberg was in. Now, we've covered Cronenberg here in the past. Please go back, look at our episode on the Shivers. So, as you're all well aware, body horror is this man's jam. And The Fly, at least as Cronenberg envisioned it, was the perfect way to take the draft that Pogue and Green had both put forth and then really ratchet that up to 11. But in this instance, he didn't just want the story to focus on how it was originally presented. You see, Pogue and Green had kept the format very similar to the 1958 film. It's about a married couple, where the husband just happens to be a scientist. You know, does a little home experimenting in a lab with some teleportation, and he accidentally crosses himself with a fly. That old chestnut. You know, he'd get some strength, he'd have horrendous changes, but along the way there'd be some side characters and friends who would help and interact, and even a villain to have to foil. But it would still be tragic, but the ending would remain hopeful. Cronenberg had a different vision. He kept the bodily changes, he even ramped them up, going through multiple versions of the scientist metamorphosizing into something that is a more horrifying genetic mix of both man and insect, rather than just turning into a large fly, as the original treatment had indicated. He had also decided to couch the story as a tragic romance, further complicated by creating a love triangle between a scientist, a journalist, and her ex-boyfriend, current boss, who are all coming to terms with these various changes in their interpersonal relationships, and how the scientist's transformation into something monstrous was complicating it all. Gone is a true villain. Instead, we simply have a concerned rival potential love interest who at his core, is not a bad person. And, in typical Cronenberg fashion, he renamed the characters, and for some of them, he did his usual, and this is just my humble opinion, overkill conventions. I'm sure you're going to pick up on that when you have a moment to hear their names. Now, to his credit, Cronenberg shared his writing credit with Pogue on the project, noting that he had used the initial story as the base to make his revisions. Now, all they needed was a proper cast. Production moved to Canada, specifically Toronto, where Cronenberg again hired the same crew that had worked with him on all of his previous films. With a budget of $9 million, Cronenberg had his work cut out for him. 
To cast the lead for the film, a host of actors were floated to play scientist Seth Brundle, with production initially wanting John Malkovich, who had passed, and then they switched their focus to John Lithgow, but he found the process not to be his cup of tea. Fox, as a studio, had been pushing for a big name when it came to casting a lead. They wanted stars. Somebody like Michael Keaton, Robert De Niro, James Woods, Mel Gibson, Willem Dafoe. Hell, even Richard Dreyfuss was thrown into that list. Man, that would have been weird. They were viewed as bankable and safe. Cronenberg, though, found himself drawn to one Jeff Goldblum, who had tested well for the part and was excited for the opportunity to work with the director. From a studio perspective, Fox, that is. Goldblum was not a big enough draw, having come off of doing comedies and kid stuff, like The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai and Transylvania 65000. But here's their problem. Fox was just distributing. They weren't paying for any of this, so their objection was immaterial as far as Brooks Films was concerned. A true argument, though, against casting Goldblum would come from special effects man Chris Wallace, who was hired to create the look for the ever-transforming scientist-turned-fly Seth Brundle, as he mutates from man to hybrid to fly. You see, Goldblum, with his angular face, strong nose, and very expressive eyes, caused worry that as they continued to layer on the various prosthetics needed for each of the stages of transformation, the actor's skull in general would cause great difficulty when they were applying the special effects. But Goldblum, to his credit, was game to try anything, and Cronenberg believed in him, making the final call to have Goldblum cast as the lead. Linda Hamilton, Laura Dern, and Jennifer Jason Leigh were all considered for the role of journalist and love interest Veronica Quaif, but it would be Goldblum who stepped in and suggested that they screen test his then-girlfriend, actor Gina Davis, for the role. Cronenberg was hesitant, as was Brooks, but they moved forward allowing Davis to screen test anyway, and she came in to audition, and they were blown away by her performance. Kornfeld, though, was still unsure. He tried to downplay the actress's performance at the screen test, claiming, well, she tested so well just because Cronenberg and Pogue had delivered a great script. It was easy to look good when you have their writing. But after auditioning a few other candidates, even the producer was forced to admit that it truly was no contest. Davis was perfect for the role. Now, you need a great foil here, especially since we're having a love triangle, and that's where actor John Getz came in. John Getz, of blood simple fame, ended up being cast to play the imperious and jealous yuppie ex-boyfriend of Veronica, Stathis Borens. See, Cronenberg? I mean, come on. Getz's audition was sealed by his rather prickly nature during the audition, and the actor came to read for the part, he was forced to wait around as Cronenberg and Kornfeld were in another meeting, and that left the actor a great deal of just sitting still, where he was dealing with an ever-increasing headache. The gruff annoyance and pain that that headache caused would later make David Cronenberg tell Getz, just listen, keep having headaches on set to replicate that level of perturbed arrogance that he brought in with him. Throw in actress Joy Bouchel playing a bar floozy named Tawny, 
professional boxer George Tavallo to play her arrogant and rough bar boyfriend, and a cameo appearance by David Cronenberg himself as a doctor, and you have this perfectly little diminutive cast to create a real study in body horror. Add into the mix composer Howard Shore as he scored this film, having already worked with Cronenberg on his past movies The Brood, Scanners, Videodrome, and just coming off of working with Scorsese for After Hours, Shore delivered a bit of orchestral mastery that set a very haunting yet despairing tone, which is perfect for a doomed sci-fi romance. Shooting would take place from December 1st of 1985 and would last through the end of February of 1986. Goldblum threw himself into his prep work for the role, both working out to bulk up his brief, seemingly healthy scenes before his transformation and downward spiral, as well as perfecting the various insect-like tics and affectations that would come to dominate his performance. Goldblum would later comment that he tried to show Brundle, at least at first, as exhibiting sort of addict behavior, taking a page from the cocaine addicts that he had been interacting with just in Hollywood, talking fast with a self-absorbed style, as if completely over-caffeinated, and often improvising long stretches of his dialogue, much to Cronenberg's delight, that would show his ever-increasing manic behavior. Goldblum also had to contend with the very real, very scary prospect, though, of working with Typhoon, the baboon who was on set to portray the lab animal that Seth Brundle works with to test his teleportation science. Great apes are already a temperamental lot and very dangerous to work with, but baboons have a particularly unique hierarchical style. Now, you can never actually train a baboon, you can only intimidate it enough to get it to work with you. And if you ever lose that level of fear or respect that it holds for you, one is going to quickly find themselves missing a face in short order. While a chimpanzee will eventually view a person as being its equal, and ultimately then a lesser rival that will possibly need to be defeated, baboons have a tendency to have sort of what we call troop structure. They will always defer power to the perceived largest male in the vicinity. And fortunately for the people on the set of The Fly, Jeff Goldblum, with his six foot four frame, was able to cow the rather aggressive and randy ape into behaving just by having his presence on set alone. And that was a really good thing too, because while on set, Typhoon, he apparently got a bit fresh with the script supervisor Jillian Richardson and sort of attempted to put some rudimentary primate love moves on the young lady before Goldblum, with the backing from Typhoon's trainer, was able to reel that ape's libido in check. Nice work, Jeff. As his on-screen transformation occurred, prosthetics would start to take five to six hours at a time to apply, and actor Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis would hang out on set, with Davis reading to Goldblum as he was stuck in a makeup chair. Goldblum was left practicing hard with a dialogue coach to master the use of his various sets of prosthetic teeth that he was forced to wear on screen. 
Wallace would go on to create over seven different levels of transformation for Goldblum to work with, which would gradually evolve more and more layers of makeup and various levels of latex suits, ultimately culminating with the last two models being creature rod puppets, the penultimate one being dubbed the Space Bug by the cast and crew, and the final form being called the Brundle Thing. Not enough can be said about the incredible lengths that Wallace went to create unique and disquieting metamorphosis. The subtle layering of the various levels of hidden progression that can be seen as Brundle metamorphosizes through the various stages of development. The first subtle disfigurement, then biological atrophy, and then the horrific fusion and growths were all applied with loving yet grotesque attention to detail, much of which was kept from fellow actors on the set, which leads to some rather amazing reaction shots. For example, during the filming of the scene where Seth is talking to Veronica and his ear falls off, Cronenberg did not at all tell Davis that was going to happen, so her reaction of shock and revulsion on camera is genuine. Wallace, though, did have two problems. If he wanted to create a final transformation that would call for having, well, Brundlefly's final form burst out of what was essentially now this human shell that was Jeff Goldblum, he had to do it in a way that would not utilize bladder effects that were now made de rigueur by the special effects community. You go back and look at films like The Werewolf of London, The Thing, The Howling, Scanners, they used those explicitly. They were looking for something new. They wanted something that would cause a new raw form to completely burst forth from the old form and look actually plausible. None of that weird stretchiness that bladders would give you. To achieve this, they basically created this expanding robotic controlled head that would push or burst its way through the various prosthetics worn by Goldblum, which would then reveal to be this monstrous rod puppet beneath Jeff Goldblum's face. And of course, in the same shot, they would obscure the actor. And well, let's face it, they would have what was left of his human face slough off and fall away. Now to get the eye pop just right, Wallace ended up melting these condoms that he had attached with oversized prop eye lenses. And he'd fill those with, well, of course, it's a horror movie. You can only go one of two ways. You can go Caro Syrup or you can go KY Jelly. And he went KY Jelly. And as the rubber face contorted, pushing forth, that allowed the camera to catch the effects of these eyes first rolling forward popping out, then oozing, shifting in their sockets before ultimately disintegrating as the rod puppet burst through, becoming the ultimate version of the film's, quote, monster. It was honestly a technical achievement for Wallace, and it created a very disquieting effect. Now, much of the violence of the film was toned down, which is rather astounding because, honestly, it's still pretty violent. And that was done to keep the audience sympathetic to Goldblum's character. So scenes from the script of him killing lab animals and attacking a homeless woman ended up being removed and never shot. 
although there is a former scene of the baboon-cat hybrid that was later reinserted into the video release of the film, which shows Seth Brundle beating to death a lab animal as an act of mercy. Now, to allow Goldblum to seemingly walk up walls and across ceilings, a giant room was constructed from a base of a sewer pipe within the main warehouse that they were shooting at, and that would slowly allow the set to be rotated around a static camera, which would create the illusion of Goldblum being suddenly able to walk across any given surface. Wanting the telepods to look futuristic, but still relatable, Cronenberg requested that the teleportation devices be modeled after the cylinders of one of his beloved Ducati 450 Desmo motorcycles, created those iconic booths that we so associate with the film today. In truly genius fashion, it would be Mel Brooks, though, who was visiting on the set that day, who would ad-lib the line that would ultimately become the movie's tag phrase. Be afraid. Be very afraid. There's more that I want to say, but geez, you folks, you've been ever so patient listening to me prattle on. How's about I shut up and we get to that trailer? What do you say? I think you really want to talk to me. Sorry, I have three other interviews to do before this party's over. Yeah, but they're not working on something that'll change the world as we know it. They say they are. Yeah, but they're lying. There is a limit, even to the imagination. Human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. Where our greatest creations meet our deepest fears. Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through Something went wrong. You are about to go beyond that limit. Those weird hairs that were growing out of your back, I, I had them analyzed. But they were definitely not human. If you saw how scared and angry and desperate he is... I'm sure Typhoid Mary was a very nice person, too, when you saw her socially. No! You're afraid to be destroyed and recreated, aren't you? You're changing, Seth. Everything about you is changing. Oh, no. What's happening to me? Am I dying? I want to know what's going on. What does the disease want? What's to turn me into something else? Oh, no. A fly got into the transmitter pod with me that first time when I was alone. Don't go back to it. It could be contagious. Uh, I'm afraid. Don't be afraid. No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. <laughs> Science reporter Veronica Ronnie Quaife, as played by Gina Davis, is attending a party hosted by Bartok Industries, and she's interviewing various scientists in attendance for her employer, Particle Magazine, when she stumbles into a conversation with the awkward yet still very charming Seth Brundle, as played by Jeff Goldblum. 
a man who invites her back to his lab to show her something that will change the world. And while she initially has her doubts, she inevitably does take him up on his offer. When she arrives, though, she's skeptical about the freestanding designer phone booths that she finds in his laboratory that also doubles as his living space. And he's quick to point out that there's more to his work than it seems. And he decides to have her help him with a quick demonstration, utilizing one of her silk stockings. I call them telepods. They're controlled by this. Thank God for that. So, uh, what do they do, the phone booths? Telepods. Uh, okay. I need an object. Um, say, do you have something uh, on you that's uh, personal that I could use? Something uniquely you? Uh, an item of clothing or jewelry? What, are you kidding? No, I'm serious. Okay. Here it goes. largest microwave oven. I'm glad I didn't give you my Rolex. I had a Rolex. No, you're missing the point. Look. Teleportation? Please. Veronica is impressed and starts trying to record their conversation. But Seth, who is looking for both a way to impress a beautiful woman and still keep his work private, refuses to go on record with her. And after apologizing for making a mistake, he politely hustles Ronnie out of his lab. Ronnie goes the next day to her editor and former boyfriend, Stathis Borens, as played by John Getz, and tells him all about the incredible work that Brundle is doing. But he's rather dismissive and tells Ronnie that she got taken in by this, quote, 
teleportation. Well, that's it. What do you think? It's a joke. What? He's conning you. What's well, an old nightclub routine? The two cabinets. And you fell for it. Wait a minute. That was no nightclub Are we having lunch? Listen, that was no nightclub routine. I was there. I saw it. Sure. Send him in. You must have made an impression. What do you mean? Your magician has followed you here. I'm Stathis Borns. I'm the editor of Particle Magazine. Uh, Seth Brundle. Oh, I know who you are. Uh, listen, uh, why don't you two use my office? I've got to run. If you plan to make anything disappear, please let me know. I've got an assistant editor who's outlived his usefulness. You didn't waste any time. I'm not getting any younger. He didn't seem... He wasn't impressed by your tape? He thinks you're a con man. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah? Well, let's see what the people at Omni think about it. No, no. Listen, Veronica... I've come here to say one magic word to you. Yeah? Cheeseburger. Seth arrives and offers to take Veronica to lunch. And while he's overjoyed that Borons did not take him seriously, he admits to Ronnie that he's been doing this alone for far too long. So he makes her a pitch. Follow him. Document his work. Completely independent of both Borons or Particle Magazine and have the exclusive rights to his story that she could use for a book. One that will, of course, end with the scientist successfully teleporting himself across the room. Veronica agrees and starts to shadow Seth, filming his work and experiments. With Veronica documenting, Seth first attempts to teleport a live test subject, a lab baboon. And, to their mutual horror and disappointment, the process ends up turning the poor creature inside out which leads to its untimely death. Seth is rather upset, commenting that this is all his fault, the computer was unable to understand how to deal with the living flesh, and he heads off to lick his wounds. During his reflection period, he and Veronica start to make small talk, and they find they enjoy each other's company, with Veronica actually making the first move to initiate a physical relationship between them. Post-coitus, Seth suddenly gets an idea in his head, and he has to teach the computer to understand the flesh, based on a remark that Veronica makes. And he demonstrates this hypothesis by using two steaks that he and Veronica were going to have for dinner, realizing that he must get the program used to transporting living tissue if he wants his pods to work properly. Veronica, for her part, has to deal with Stathis confronting her over her involvement with Brundle, both personally and professionally. But she blows him off, considering him just to be a jealous ex. Ronnie and Seth continue seeing each other and working on the telepods together, which culminates in Seth having a documented, successful teleportation of yet another baboon test subject, proving the process of learning the flesh did indeed work. When Ronnie runs off to stop Stathis from scooping their story, Seth begins to drink alone and get jealous, knowing that they used to date. 
in a vulnerable state, he makes a snap decision that he should just go ahead and test the pod alone before the lab results come back in on the ape and without any other human witnesses. He fires up the machine, as well as the video camera, and sends himself 15 feet across the loft. But along the way, he fails to detect that a common housefly has joined him in the telepod during his travels. Residue means your old boyfriend, doesn't it? Stathis Barnes is your old boyfriend. From the desk of Stathis Barnes. Under the desk of Stathis Barnes. She's working for her old boyfriend. Now she runs out late at night to see him. Was this the Ronnie game? I'm catching on, I'm catching on. I didn't mean to kill your brother, but he didn't die in vain, if that's of any comfort. And as the general said, there's nothing I'd ask you to do that I wouldn't do myself, boys. Let's do it. returns to the loft triumphant, having stopped Borons from scooping their story, although she finds that Seth is a little standoffish, and he informs her of his success with teleporting himself, and then awkwardly apologizes for his jealousy. They end up spending the night together, and two things become very apparent. There's a spot on Seth's back where he was scratched earlier, and it has a strange, coarse hair growing from the wound. That and then Seth awakens in the middle of the night with amazing dexterity and superhuman strength, which is, first, a delightful turn-on for the two lovers, but something is indeed off. Seth spends the next day opining about how he feels that the teleportation was like having his body broken down and purified, a process that he likens to coffee going through a filter. Thus something he views as improving him in all ways. He begins to get aggressive. He talks fast. He consumes vast amounts of sugar. Ronnie is still worried, and she ends up taking samples of the strange hairs to be analyzed. The situation comes to a head, though, when Seth, who is now starting to look a little blotchy and sweaty, is annoyed that Ronnie herself will not go through the teleporter. 
claiming that she is now holding him back, both as a sexual partner, as a professional, as a friend, and he kicks her out of the loft, and he starts stalking out into the night, looking for trouble. Munching on endless chocolate bars, Seth enters a bar where two men are arm-wrestling, and he challenges the larger of the two, Marky, is played by George Chavello, to give him a try, betting him $100 that he can beat them, and throwing in that if Seth wins, he gets to walk out of the bar with Marky's girlfriend, Tawny, is played by Joy Bushell. Using his newfound enhanced strength, Seth snaps Marky's wrist, winning the wrestling contest and grievously injuring the man. Seth then leaves with Tawny and takes her back to the loft, where he obsessively shows her the pods by teleporting himself multiple times and sleeping with her. In the morning, though, Seth, now looking even worse, angrily demands that Tawny should go through the teleporter herself, scaring the young lady. Seth is stopped from forcing Tawny into the pod by the arrival of Ronnie. I'm afraid! Don't be afraid! No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Who's this? Oh, I forgot to tell you, I live with my mother, too. Mom, meet Tawny. I gotta go. Thanks for a wonderful time. Jealous? You're changing, Seth. Everything about you is changing. You look bad. You smell bad. I've never been much of a bather. Those weird hairs that were growing out of your back, I took them to a lab. I had them analyzed. The hairs? Hairs? Oh. Yeah, that's a strange thing to do. Not as strange as the results. The guy at the lab had trouble identifying them. He finally came to the conclusion that they were definitely not human. Oh. <laughs> very good. Not human, Seth. In fact, very likely insect hairs. That's silly. That's ridiculous. Look. Now there's more. Look at your face. Something happened when you went through, Seth. You've got to get some help. I think you must be sick. You You're jealous! I've become free. I've been released, and you can't stand it. You'll do anything to bring me down. Look at me. Does this look sick? Does this look like a sick man to you? No! Stop it! Are there any sick men who can do that? Come here. No. Heels off! I don't need you anymore. Please, wait. Don't come back. When Ronnie leaves, though, Seth has a moment of clarity, looking at himself, really looking at himself for the first time in days in the bathroom mirror, and slowly realizing to his horror that his body is indeed changing, likening it to a disease. His razor will not cut the new coarse hairs that are growing out of his face, and his fingernails begin to ooze pus, and then much to his disgust and shock, they painlessly fall off. 
Questioning if he is dying, Seth goes back to the computer to query the outcome of when he first teleported himself, and to his abject shock, he discovers that there indeed was a housefly in the booth with him, and the machine had merged their DNA together, creating an entirely new entity that Seth begins to call Brundlefly. A month passes, and Seth reaches out to Ronnie, telling her how right she was and how much worse he has gotten. When she comes to see him, she is shocked to find that Seth is horribly disfigured. His hair is falling out, his teeth are becoming sharp and pointy, and he is forced to walk with two canes. He explains that he has had his DNA spliced with that of a fly, and that's why all of this is happening to him. Ronnie wants him to get medical help, but Brundle refuses, not wanting to be an experiment himself. While talking, Seth vomits on a donut he intended on eating, and he's both embarrassed and revolted that Ronnie had to see it. But in mid-conversation, as he's asking for help, his right ear falls off, causing the scientist to weep and beg Ronnie to please, please help him, with Ronnie looking on, sobbing, powerless to do anything. Ronnie goes to Borons for help, but the man can only suggest not returning to Brundle, urging her to stay away from this potentially diseased man. When Ronnie refuses to give up, Borons demands proof as to why he should even bother to help. So Ronnie begins to videotape Seth's dramatic changes, his appendages fusing and sloughing off, but also his newfound abilities, like walking up walls and across the ceiling, just like an insect. He also starts to develop insect-like tics, movements. He learns he cannot eat food traditionally anymore, so, like a fly, he vomits stomach acid over whatever he's about to consume, and then sucks up the dissolved meal. Boron sees the video evidence, and he is indeed both moved and horrified. But Ronnie has another problem to share. She discovers that she's pregnant, and she's worried that it happened after Seth's transformation, and is now fearful that she will give birth to some sort of newfound fly-human mutant. She begins to have nightmares about giving birth to a giant maggot. Seth continues to get worse, having his computer start to not recognize his voice anymore. He ends up having all of his teeth fall out, and adding them to his medicine cabinet, where the rest of his various bodily appendages now reside. You're a relic. Yes, you are. You can't deny it. Vestigial archaeological redundant <sighs> artifacts of a bygone era of historical interest only Ronnie goes to see Seth planning on first telling him about their good news but Seth is so hideously deformed and erratically behaving that Ronnie simply begins to weep Seth explains that he knows he's changing, and he's also aware that the human part of him is beginning to lose control. So, for her own sake and safety, Ronnie should leave, because if she stays, Seth is afraid he's going to hurt her. Ronnie leaves, now fully committed to aborting her baby, which she tells awaiting Borons outside the lab. But the conversation is overheard by Brundle, who realizes that 
if his child is aborted, there will be nothing left of him in the world. Seth tracks them down to a hospital, where he breaks into the operating room and carries Ronnie back to the lab. Stathis arrives at the lab armed with a shotgun, looking to rescue Ronnie. He discovers Brundlefly's plan to merge a human subject together with himself to minimize his fly genes, hopefully to regain some of his humanity. Seth attacks and overpowers the publisher, hobbling him by melting one of his hands and then melting one of his feet with his vomit drop. But Ronnie intervenes before Seth actually goes to kill him. Dragging her into a telepod, Seth explains his plan. Help me. Help me to be human. Ronnie struggles with Seth, and as she attempts to push him away, his jaw falls off, causing the rest of his outer skin to rupture and crack as he takes on his final giant man-fly form, looking completely insect and alien. Brundlefly manages to put both Ronnie and himself in telepods A and B, but when the pod door is locked during the countdown sequence, Borons is able to barely fire the shotgun into one of the cables of Ronnie's pod, separating it from power and the others. Brundlefly breaks the door to his pod and begins to emerge to stop the process. But the countdown has already reached its climax, and before he can fully exit, the telepod fires, sending Brundlefly and broken metal and glass from telepod B to merge together in the awaiting telepod C. Ronnie is freed, and now, armed with the shotgun, she confronts what is now the agonized Brundlefly as it crawls towards her, with bits of metal and machine fused into its body. What is left of Seth inside the creature motions for Ronnie to shoot him, putting an end to it all. And while she protests and sobs, Ronnie eventually ends his life out of mercy. Credits roll. Wow, what a downer. So, 
Where do we even begin? Well, here. I'm talking about why this movie is a superior remake, and for my money, it has to be the way that it makes the story feel, well, more personal. Kurt Newman's 1958 film is a fun one, and it offers up a nice bit of sci-fi horror, but it plays things rather straight. It faithfully sticks to that Langellan story, and it does so in a very by-the-book manner. And in that regard, it's as serious as a heart attack. You're supposed to feel sympathy and revulsion for Dr. Hedison's scientist, who, at the end, begs his wife to end all of his suffering. Audience watching it now with a jaundiced eye may find the movie just to be silly or absurd, and they often will callously compare it to modern filmmaking techniques, but on the whole, the original 1958 The Fly is a really decent offering. So why I'm making the argument against it being a superior film? Well, honestly, in my book, it squanders a good deal of its resources in the effort. I mean, honestly, you have Vincent Price, who can be used as both a foil for humor and horror in equal measure. But it doesn't really make use of him in either capacity. He's sort of just along for the ride. Which is a bummer, because if you haven't figured this out by listening to this show, I'm a diehard Vincent Price fan. It's a B-movie that, while successful, it didn't lean into its excuse the phrase, Venus. It tries to be very restrained and stay above some of the silly concerns it raises. Sure, people find humor in it if they watch it now. They can appreciate the absurdity, but it missed the mark in creating what I would consider to be some more nuanced pathos. Now, when you look at 1986's The Fly, it's a project that was really deeply personal to Cronenberg. He would later give interviews where he would explain that his version of The Fly was his own meditation on how we cope with both disease and the catastrophe of aging, using his own father, writer Milton Cronenberg's struggle with disease as the film's basis. The elder Cronenberg was diagnosed with a condition in the 1970s that was initially thought to be colitis, but later as his illness progressed, he found that his body was unable to process calcium, so his bones became overly weakened and brittle, and they would break under very minimal pressure, which caused the man intense pain and suffering. Watching the process that would eventually lead to the death of his father was horrifying to his son, who would couch this story as, to me, the film is a metaphor for aging. It's a compression of any love affair that goes to the end. And where does that go? To the end of one's love. Oh, Jesus. I am butchering this to hell. Let's start over. <laughs> to me, the film is a metaphor for aging. It's a compression of any love affair that goes to the end of one of the lover's lives. We've all got the disease, the disease of being finite. Death is the basis of all horror. And here, that horror abounds. We don't get a mute main character in 1986's The Fly. You know, one that just has a fly head running around with a sheet draped over him. 
No, instead, we have a highly articulate and intelligent individual desperately trying to come to terms with what is happening to him, and through it all, he's being observed by the woman he loves who is powerless to help him. Goldblum is amazing here, for all the right reasons. And even if you were to take out the bodily gru and gore that comes through his metamorphosis, his performance is amazing, because he's doing all of the heavy lifting of acting and emoting through layer after layer of applied prosthetic. We get the classic quirky, fast-talking, albeit nerdy scientist who's trying to take a shot at a beautiful woman that he meets at a party. Clearly somewhat out of his league, but from that point we get pure Goldblum. All the charm and all the fun that we would get to see him display in later offerings. Movies like Deep Cover, Jurassic Park, Independence Day. But then, he revs the performance up, slowly increasing those insect-like ticks, the head positioning, being drawn to and distracted by lights, punctuating his speech with fluttering tongue rolls to create a distinctive buzzing pattern to his conversations. It's genius-level acting. And what's more, Goldblum takes Brundle through all these stages of grief during his time on screen, as he copes with the fallout of his fusion with an insect. Seriously, he starts with denial. As his strength increases, his energy mounts, Seth insists that he's never felt better. In spite of the fact that his skin's changing, he's emitting terrible odors, both things that he dismisses, you know, citing he's never been much of a bather. But later, when he starts to spin the transformation as a positive, he still is clinging to this as something he can capitalize off of, noting that this could possibly be worth a Nobel Prize or two. Seth? Seth? No, no, up here. Oh. Got pretty good at it, haven't I? Yeah, it's almost second nature. Stop biting my nails. Oh, look at this. What's this? I don't know. I seem to be stricken by a disease with a purpose, wouldn't you say? Maybe not such a bad disease after all. I can't stay. No, no, no. Why not? Why can't you? I can't take it. It's too much. What's going to take? The disease has just revealed its purpose. We don't have to worry about contagion anymore. I know what the disease wants. What does the disease want? It wants to turn me into something else. That's not too terrible, is it? Most people would give anything to be turned into something else. Turned into what? What do you think, a fly? Am I becoming a 185-pound fly? No, I'm becoming something that never existed before. I'm becoming Brundlefly. When things start getting out of control for him, Seth first goes to anger, screaming at Ronnie to leave him alone, throwing jealousy in her face, accusing her of using him for a story, not caring about him, all while raving about the pain and suffering that his bodily transformation is starting to cause him, especially to his extremities. And that swaps back to fear. 
Brundle's ongoing monologues, his weeping in front of the bathroom mirror as he watches his body distort, change, begin to slough off, particularly when he chews his fingernails in terror, only to have them come off too. you get to bargaining. Brundle's desperate attempts to reverse his condition, and depending on what version of the movie you've watched, his experiments on the baboon-cat hybrid along the way, his effort to halt the effects of his transformation, and then later, his manic attempt to combine Veronica himself and their unborn baby into a singular unique entity to halt the mutation, both come to mind. And of course, acceptance. Brundle ends the film by begging Veronica kill him during the conclusion, noting that when she refuses to hold the gun up, he just takes the barrel from her and places it against his own head, finally ready to be at peace. But what also sets this remake apart from the original, it has to be the marvelous Gina Davis, and the very real, very palatable chemistry she has with her then-romantic partner, Goldblum. This is the second of three movies that they did together in the mid-1980s. Transylvania 65000, and then after this, Earth Girls Are Easy were the other two. And you could see that Davis simply taps into the helplessness, the disgust, and the ultimate fear that she may have another monster growing inside of her from her time with Seth. And she doesn't want to carry it to term. Now, in light of all the recent debates over pro-choice, pro-life advocates in our now weird post-Roe v. Wade America, I would be interested to see just how the up-and-coming Gen Z college students would react to this film. Do they find it compelling? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it indifferent as an aspect of the horror? Because this has become quite topical again. I like that the film is complex with the way that it navigates the triangle between Brundle, Quaife, and Borons. Ronnie has to put up with a lot from her ex-boyfriend slash current boss, but she draws a hard line and doesn't have a problem putting him in his place when his jealousy comes from seeing her have a real relationship with Brundle. Borons is a selfish jerk, but he's a selfish jerk that cares about Ronnie. This isn't really a full pure lust situation, and that's why things are so interesting because the film makes the swing from sci-fi romance to bodily horror, and the roles all reverse. Our hero, Brundle, becomes our monstrous villain, and our jerk finds himself suddenly having to be the much-needed friend and reluctant savior, as Ronnie attempts to keep all of them safe. The dynamic shift is such a marvelous way to make the story raise the stakes, and 
the original film, it didn't have that. It was just couched as, why would a loving housewife kill her husband? Oh, he was a monster. The end. Now, it did occur to me as I watched this, I wondered if John Getz was worried that he would end up being typecast, always showing up as seemingly the third wheel of some sort of love triangle. A nod to his roles both in the Coen brothers' brilliant 1984 movie, Blood Simple, and then Douglas Day Stewart's erotic thriller, The Thief of Hearts, which came out that same year. But we do know now from his track record, he did take on other roles as well. Cronenberg's The Fly is a film that has many smart, small touches. One that I particularly love, why would a scientist be so dedicated to teleportation? Oh, it's easy! They're prone to motion sickness brought on by travel. Nice! Now, I'll say this, the flip side, though, is there is, at least in general, in my humble opinion, a gaping hole here. A plot thread that if one were to pull, the entire cinematic sweater would just start to come undone. Seth has successfully already perfected the art of teleporting inanimate objects when our movie starts, which that in of itself is astounding, a revolutionary achievement that would create shockwaves through the scientific community, it would change commerce and logistics as we know it, so why? Why is he so doggone hung up on the fact that he can't immediately figure out how to teleport living beings? I, I understand, you want to have a goal, but this kind of feels like winning an Oscar and then as soon as it's in your hand, being upset that you don't have an EGOT. Take it easy, you just created billions of dollars worth of profit for a company who are obviously going to keep you doing exactly what you're doing, so what's the rush? And that was always something that bothered me a bit about both versions of The Fly in general. But again, perhaps this is a it's-just-me problem. I'm being too logical with something that was never designed to be scrutinized to this level. But I mean, hey, that's just the nature of hosting a film podcast, right? After all, it's what I'm paid to... Wait a minute. Nobody's paying me for any of this. <laughs> Moving on. Well, you know I enjoy and love this movie, but... That's not to assume everybody feels the same way about it. And honestly, that's okay. Because that's exactly why we have things like the sidecar. Welcome to the sidecar, y'all. It's so fucking here. Welcome to the sidecar, all. We got what you wanna hear. Yep, yep. Welcome to the sidecar, y'all. It's so fucking here. Welcome to the sidecar, all. We got what you wanna hear. Yep, yep, yep. And joining us again in the sidecar today is the great John Seavey, host of the Half-Priced Horror Podcast. John was gracious enough to share his hot take on this film, so rather than me gassing on, I'll just ask John, what do you think about The Fly? I don't know exactly what Chris is going to say about Gina Davis in this episode. I'm sure he'll have some wonderful things to bring up, don't get me wrong, but I don't know if he's going to continue on with the discussion of her career after 1986 when The Fly was released. 
Certainly the 80s and most of the 90s were very good to her as an actor, but after both Cutthroat Island and The Long Kiss Goodnight both flopped at the box office, and at least one of those should be a future episode in my opinion, she had to take some time off to reevaluate her career. And one of the big conclusions she came to in this reevaluation is that women are underrepresented in media, and the representation they do get is, well, let's not bury the lead here. It's like what Gina Davis gets in The Fly. She founded the Gina Davis Institute on Gender in Media, which is still active to this day, and she's a tireless activist for equality in media and sports. Because, oh, she's also an archer who placed 24th in the Olympic qualifiers? So why does The Fly make me think of Gina Davis's efforts to get better roles for women in movies? Because it's a very different film if you look at it as Ronnie's movie rather than Seth's. If you see this as a movie about Seth Brundle, it's all about the horrors of succumbing to a terminal disease and the heartbreak of dementia as it erodes the person you once were. It's sad and tragic and a thing of beauty, easily Cronenberg's best work, although I still think Videodrome is his most personal and distinctive film. And it's hard not to feel for Seth Brundle as he literally falls apart on screen. But if you watch it as Ronnie's movie, it's about a woman who gets stuck between an abusive ex and a new boyfriend who reveals himself as even more abusive, both of whom want to strip her of her agency and force her into a relationship based on total dependency. Gina Davis is basically stuck in the role of servicing all the male narratives, unceasingly pouring emotional support into Seth Brundle even as he becomes more and more hostile and controlling while her old boyfriend uses the destruction of their relationship to make himself look better. And I don't think this is necessarily a flaw in the movie, just to make that clear. I think it's very clear that Cronenberg was thinking about Ronnie's arc the entire time, and he does intend this to be a statement about how women can get swept up and love-bombed and emotionally overwhelmed by a charming man into a relationship that becomes very different once they're already committed, and all the ways that the demands for greater intimacy dovetail with increased control until before you know it you're not your own person anymore. Literally, in this case, move in with me takes on a whole new meaning when it involves a teleporter. And Cronenberg handles the material pretty well, all things considered. It falls down a bit at the end when Ronnie is reduced to the role of damsel in distress while Stannis Baratheon, I know, it's not his name, but eh, close enough, gets to be the White Knight. But anyone thinking that this isn't intended to be about Ronnie's bodily autonomy just as much as it is about Seth Brundle's horrifying bodily transformation needs to take a closer look at the scene where Ronnie decides she wants an abortion and not one, not two, but three men spend their precious screen time asking if she's, like, really, really sure about it. The horror in this film for Ronnie isn't Brundlefly, it's every male figure that gets a speaking role. And the abusive relationships are never portrayed as a mistake on Ronnie's part, there are never any jokes about her bad taste in men or her poor judgment, and she certainly doesn't give any mixed signals to the abusive dudes in her life. It's very clear that the only reason she continues hanging out with Skeksis Bathescape is because he's blackmailing her with the threat of publishing an expose on Brundle's work before he's ready to publish. Because, well, teleportation of living people will be a world-changing breakthrough, teleporting cargo from point to point instantly is clearly just going to be a fad. But I digress. Cronenberg writes her as a woman in a situation beyond her control, doing the best she can with no good options, and it's about as sympathetic a portrayal of domestic abuse as you're likely to get in 1986. Or now, for that matter. Although the less said about Tawny, the better. 
That dude just broke my boyfriend's wrist. He's such an alpha. But as sympathetic as it is, and as well handled as it is, it's still a movie about a woman who's primarily there to emotionally service a man's narrative, right down to the end where Brundlefly needs to put the gun up to his own head before she'll decide that maybe it's time to shoot her abusive lover. As beefy as Davis's role is, this is still a movie that doesn't pass the Bechdel test. And it seems to want to give a redemption arc to Slithis Borealis, too, which is something he absolutely does not need or deserve. Now, obviously I'm not saying that Gina Davis took time off of acting to found her own Media Studies Institute solely because she was disappointed in the screenplay for 1986's The Fly. But I do think that she probably recognized, even then, that a lot of the roles for women in film and television tend to be about servicing male narratives instead of creating parts that center female actors. And when she recognized the problem, she did something about it. I think that's a pretty amazing thing to do, and it's just one more reason to be impressed by Gina Davis. Not just as a performer in this movie and in general, but as a person. John, John, John. I don't even know where to begin, so I guess I will start with, um, hell yes. Cutthroat Island is a train wreck that I unabashedly love and should absolutely be a future episode here. Thank you for that. Now, I didn't go as far into the future on this episode with Gina Davis and her career, but John honestly did a great job here summarizing and putting it all in perspective in a really great way. Truly, I love the concept of looking at the story from Ronnie's perspective. And yes, her agency is really handicapped in this film, which, while I feel it does contribute further to this nightmare scenario that she finds herself in, it could have been handled in a slightly different fashion. I say this knowing, too, that I'm looking at this film, as John clearly stated, through my evolved 2023 eyes, where the character of Ronnie is clearly a woman who is being abused by people in her life and or used as a prop. Now, I didn't necessarily want to do this, but John clearly gives me an in when he brings up the Bechdel test, with whom I have sort of a complex relationship with. I simultaneously love the concept of the Bechdel test, and here, for sake of those who are not familiar with it, the Bechdel-Wallace test is based upon a comic strip from 1985, Dykes to Watch Out For, created by cartoonist Alison Bechdel, in which it poses the rule for a good film involves three parts. The movie will have two women as characters, they will talk to each other, and the subject of their conversation will be something other than a man. Why do I love this as a concept? Well, I'm going to call it a love of good writing. You should be able to have your main and or secondary characters be able to talk and converse about subjects other than the actions of only the male lead, because that means your storytelling abilities are strong and you're fleshing out characters, you know, like real, genuine human beings who have agency. Now, the part of this that I falter with is sometimes, just like in life, we have to talk about Kevin. And with 50% of the population being male, sometimes that means a scene in a film does warrant and call for the concept of two women talking about the actions or fate of a male character. And it makes sense in the, keyword context of the film that you're watching. 
I'm not a narcissist, but as a living human male, in the story of my life, I would like to think it's not implausible at some point I've had siblings, cousins, aunts, grandparents all assembled in a room talking about me as a subject. Not all the time, but heck, the narrative of my existence perhaps has warranted it. Case in point, when I was getting married comes to mind, I'm sure people were talking about it. That being said, it's important to understand and ensure I don't think that all of these aforementioned parties should be having conversations about yours truly when they gathered en masse on the regs. That would be weird. So, do we need more of this sort of film that would pass set Bechdel test these days? Absolutely. But if you're going to go back and look at films made from previous times, I have to argue, you got to at least give them a pass for at least the time and date they were made. It doesn't make an excuse for it. It doesn't make it proper or right. But you have to acknowledge it was made in a different era with different mores and different values. So you have to view it through that contextual lens. That being said, a modern reimagining of this story could absolutely be argued for, and this could be really cool if it was reframed as from the perspective of Ronnie herself, provided they would also stick to some good old-fashioned practical special effects over digital manipulation. And honestly, you would have me being one of the first people in line to buy a ticket to see that. So, damn, John, thank you. You gave us a ton to think about here today with The Fly and for films in general. Nice job. So I can hear you out there. Chris, how was this film received back in the day? Well, unlike a lot of the B-films and stuff we talk about on this show, when it made its debut on August 15, 1986, The Fly was actually critically acclaimed, with reviewers complimenting Jeff Goldblum's performance and singing the praises of the disturbing but amazing physical effects. Variety would go on to note, It's not for the squeamish or the faint-hearted or those prone to motion sickness, but one does not have to be totally warped to appreciate the film and it does take a particular sensibility to embrace it. They praised the story and the acting, focus on Goldblum, noting that the casting of Goldblum was a good choice, as he brings a quirky, common touch to the spacey scientist role. Now, I have to say not everybody was totally enamored with the special effects. It truly wasn't for everybody. Like Karen James of the New York Times, complaining that this all-out flaunted goriness becomes distracting, and it destroys the fly, which is too bad because Mr. Goldblum's fly man has the heart of a human and Mr. Cronenberg's vision is ambitious. In the end, though, it wouldn't really matter what reviewers said, because the fly would go on to gross a tidy $40.5 million at the box office. Not too shabby for a bug movie. The film was nominated and won an Academy Award for Best Makeup, and I think if the movie had come out today, it absolutely would have been up for multiple Best Actors and Actresses slots. Horror movies didn't hold the same clout, it would seem, back in the day, but the film would go on to be nominated for five Saturn Awards, and it would walk away 
with three of them, including Best Actor for Goldblum and Best Horror Film overall. So of course, after this made some money, Fox Studios was now more than happy to try to get Brooks Films as well as Cronenberg to get a sequel underway. Special effects guru Chris Wallace was going to be on board to replace Cronenberg at helming an actual sequel. Multiple drafts were made, but ultimately it would be a script from Frank Darenbond who would be used to continue the story of Martin Brundle, the son of Seth and Veronica Quaif. Gina Davis refused to have anything to do with the sequel, as her character was killed off in the opening credits of the film. John Getz would return, now as the hideously maimed Stathis Borons. Jeff Goldblum had archived video footage, which they spliced in to have him appear again as Seth, talking to the camera in one of Veronica's old videos. As a film, it's not really great, but it's also not bad. If I'm being honest, I have to say the version of Martinfly is kind of pretty darn cool. And you could do a lot worse with an hour and 45 minutes. Also though, I have to say just my two cents again. I have to tell you, it's sort of a bigger missed opportunity with the sequel. Like I just said, they didn't have Gina Davis on board when they made it. And so much time was spent with the first movie about how she was not going to be carrying Seth's potential flybaby. And in light of casting Eric Stoltz to play the son of Seth Brundle, I feel they could have really had some amazing success by saying that Ronnie Quaife had gone off to live a secluded life with Stathis Borans, just like one of the original deleted endings was. And Bartok Industries, instead of chasing her down, went out and found Tawny, who, after her one-night stand with Seth Brundle, was now carrying his child. Tawny, blonde, fair, it would make sense that matched up with Seth, they would produce a tall, red-headed son, Martin, as portrayed by Eric Stoltz. Just all around, it seems to be a smarter take and a way to really clean up a lot of loose ends that The Fly 2 was forced to contend with. Again, nobody asked me for my opinion, but someday, you know, when I'm fabulously independently wealthy, perhaps, you know, then I'll decide to remake the remake of the sequel itself. And that seems like a good use of my time. Now, regardless, The Fly was a video store mainstay, and throughout the years, it's been relegated as nothing short of a classic. Having lapped its forebears B-movie status into A-level genre fare, routinely showing up on top 100 lists, and constantly being rediscovered by new generations of both sci-fi and horror fans. Look, I can't tell you that The Fly is going to be a life-changing experience for you. What blew us away years ago with special effects is now considered to be de rigueur for the upcoming Gen Z, but they still know how to sniff out quality. And that's where this film shines, as it has aged quite well. Still, if you're looking for a doomed sci-fi romance that quickly devolves into body horror, for my money, I would tell you, you will not be able to find anything better. The version of The Fly screened here at the LSCE was the 2005 20th Century Fox 2-disc Collector's Edition DVD that comes loaded with special features. He had three documentaries about the making of the film, deleted scenes, storyboard to film comparisons, alternate endings, test footage, the original short story, the original Pogue screenplay, Cronenberg script, interactive articles, promotional featurettes, photo galleries, original trailers, and TV spots. 
Now this version is still available on Amazon.com for the low price of $22.48. And don't get me wrong, I wouldn't tell you that it's a waste of money. However, newer releases have now supplanted it and offer you all of those same features on Blu-ray, but for a far more wallet-friendly $13.83, which I'm sure you would agree is a better deal. Now, for those of you who are completionists, the good folks at Shout Factory back in 2019 released The Fly Collection, which serves up all things fly, and that includes the 1958 original, Return of the Fly, The Curse of the Fly, the 1986 version of the film, and then its 1989 sequel, all groaning with special features and restored with loving care to Blu-ray. That whole mess can be yours for $46.27, and I would tell you that does seem like an amazing deal. Now, as of this recording, and yes, late as it has been, the original 1958 version and the two 80s films are available for streaming on HBO Max. That is, before it switches over and just calls itself Max. Now, remember, folks, we don't get anything here at the LSCE for telling you where you should make your purchases from. We just think in this day and age, it's ever so important to keep supporting physical media to ensure that these fine companies who own the rights to these amazing films will keep releasing the content that we all know and love. And at the end of the day, isn't that what it's all really about? Getting more of that content that you know and love? Besides, this is a movie that has something for everybody. Romance, horrific bodily changes, cool creature effects, and some really amazing performances to boot. And knowing that, I would ask, what are you waiting for? Get out there and get yourself a copy of The Fly today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you for joining us. We do hope you'll join us next month as Superior Remakes Summer rolls on with another favorite of mine. That would be 1988's The Blob. So be sure to join us then. I would again like to take the opportunity to thank Mr. John Seavey, host of the Half-Priced Horror, for his contribution to the sidecar. Don't worry, you're going to get to see him again here shortly. Be sure to check out the Half-Priced Horror podcast, and you can find a direct link to it in both our website and on our episode show notes. If you like what we've been doing here, that would be the LSCE Dachshunds and myself, please give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, or hey, just do it wherever you're listening to us on. Did you leave us a fun review? Hell, I'll read it here and give you a shout out on the show. Just think of it as my way of saying thank you for recognizing our love of cinema. Please swing by, check out our website, lscep.com, where we have articles, episode links, and comics for you to peruse. We've recently been added to Stitcher, and you can find us there and give us a spin if you like. Proud to say that we're on Amazon Music. If you have an account, you can simply say, Hey Alexa, play I Saw It on Linden Street, today. We're also featured both on Good Pods and on Podchaser. Those are podcast databases for listeners and creators alike. You can find us there, follow us, give us a review if you please, and hey, feel free to like any of the lists that we're a part of to give us a boost in the old rankings. You see, the more reviews and the increased likes, that affects those marvelous algorithms, and then it makes us more searchable. And then we can share these fine films with more people. And you want to do that, don't you? (laughs) Of course you do. If you have any questions for us, any comments, any movies you want us to cover, things you thought I got wrong, 
Well, we want to hear from you. So please send us an email or an audio clip to Linden Street Cinema Experience at gmail.com. You love social media? Well, we use it here. You can follow us on Twitter at LSCEP, and you can find us on Instagram at LSCE underscore podcast. If you'd like to be even more personable or wish to contribute a segment in the sidecar, please send us an audio message by way of... Eh, Anchor actually changed its name. It's now Podcasters for iTunes, I believe. But that's a free and easy app to use. So, until next time, please, everybody, take care out there. Make sure you stay healthy and well. And remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night. Good night.